Welcome to Under the Hood of Developer Marketing, the podcast devoted to developer marketing, relations, evangelism, and advocacy. I'm Stathis Jorakopoulos, and I'm your host. In each episode, I welcome a guest from the developer marketing world. We talk about best practices, challenges, lessons learned, and share insights, data, and experiences to help you boost your DevRel game, talk to, and engage with developers. This podcast is brought to you by Slash Data, the leading analyst of the developer economy and devrelx.com, a hub devoted to providing resources for developer marketing professionals, including developer ecosystem trends, news and job openings, webinars, a book, and a bi-weekly digest you can subscribe to. Access them all at devrelx.com. Hello and welcome to our new episode, part of our Master Tip series. In the Master Tip series, we share with you tips and best practices from the industry leader panel discussions we put together for the Future Developer Summit. DevRel the next day, developer-led business growth. This is the theme of today's episode featuring Tyler Jewell, Managing Director at Dell Technologies Capital, Kimberly Archer, Head of Global Marketing, Augmented Reality and Camera at Snap Inc., Patrick Sanezon, GM Cloud Developer Advocacy at Microsoft, Emilio Salvador, PM, Cloud Developer Advocacy at Google, and hosted by Andreas Costantino, who is the founder and CEO of Slash Data. More panel discussion and trends presentations rich with data from this episode and the previous ones are available at futuredeveloper.io, along with more information on the upcoming events. Now, I think we are ready and just on time to introduce today's industry panels. So if you can click the video thingy and so we can start seeing our panelists on screen. We have Kimberly, Tyler, Patrick and Emilio. Welcome everyone. If I can just do quick introductions and I'll ask you to introduce yourselves as well. So we have Tyler Jewell, Managing Director of Dell Technologies Capital. We have Kimberly Archer, Head of Global Marketing, AR and Camera at Snap. We have Patrick Shanzon, if I'm pronouncing correctly, your surname, Patrick, a GM Cloud Developer Advocacy at Microsoft, and Emilio Salvador, again, I'm hoping I'm pronouncing it correctly, Cloud Developer Advocacy at Google. I'll be the host for this session, and I'm going to ask uh, each of the panelists, I don't know if we're missing Kimberly, I don't see her on screen yet. I'll start with three gentlemen, and I'll ask you to just spend a few seconds introducing yourselves and a fun fact about you, whatever you like. That's a fun fact about you. Let's start with the order I'm seeing people on the screen, which is Patrick and then Tyler. Hey, good morning, everyone. Hi, Andreas. Uh, so I'm Patrick Chenezon. I, I, I'm GM, uh, General Manager of the Cloud Advocacy Team at Microsoft. I spent 15 years in my career building platforms. Uh, and then the, the last 15 years uh, were um, spent doing DevRel at different companies. I helped start the team at Google. Uh, then I, I went moved to do that at VMware, done that at Microsoft and at Docker. And I've been back at Microsoft for the past two years. Yeah, so that's me. Uh, fun fact about me, uh, if you knew me better, you'd know that I nearly stopped my engineering studies uh, when I was in uh, in college uh, to go write poetry or study sociology. Uh, luckily for the world, uh, that uh, avoided a lot of bad poetry. Uh, I went back to software engineering and uh, been having fun with that uh, for the past um, 30 years. That was a narrow call. <laughs> 
Thank you, Patrick. Tyler? Hi, good morning and afternoon, everybody. I'm Tyler. I'm a managing director at Dell Technologies Capital, which is the independently uh, run venture capital arm of Dell. Um, I spent 25 years as a product operator. I did product at Oracle, Quest, BEA, um, Red Hat, and MySQL. And I also was a CEO of three different startups. Two of them were acquired. Uh, one of them was acquired by Red Hat. It was a cloud IDE. And another one was WSO2. All of those startups and all my product roles were in and around developer-related businesses. Uh, and I've been an investor both as an angel and VC since 2005, predominantly, again, with developer-led and developer-related businesses, uh, investing about $150 million. And I also publish a landscape, a developer-led landscape that has now 1,200 companies that we track in it. And a fun fact, Tyler? Oh, the fun fact. Yes, of course. Thank you. Uh, fun fact about me is um, I commute uh, to work from Oregon to Palo Alto, which is about 700 miles, in a plane that I fly myself. Yeah. Cool. I really admire your uh, your maps, uh, Tyler, because they're extremely thoughtful. So I would encourage anyone to look at your ecosystem maps. Thank you. Oh, we have Kimberly. Welcome, Kimberly. Let's hear it from Emilio first and then Kimberly. Hello, everyone. Good morning, good evening, good afternoon, um, maybe even good night to some people, depending <laughs> depending where you are. My name, my name is, is um, Emilio Salvador. I've been in the developer relations space for the last, I mean, 17 years. I'm mean, close to, to Patrick, although the other way around. I started in Microsoft in 2004. I, I led uh, the developer evangelism for the field, then did Windows Phone, uh, then Windows. And from there, I moved to um, AWS and to head the serverless team. And in the last couple of years, I've been at Google and I run strategy for the developer relations team at Google Cloud. So one fun fact about me, to be honest, I don't have that many. I, I don't fly a plane, sadly, <laughs> but uh, I think I can do something not so many people can do. I can sleep at will. So I can sit down and take like a power nap for 25 minutes and I just fall asleep like, like immediately. And that, that helps me, you know, carry through the day, which is, which is useful. That is a superpower. Yeah. Thank you, Emilia Kimberly. Hi, I'm Kimberly Archer. I lead global marketing for AR and camera at Snap, and I've been working with developers for about six years now, um, starting at Samsung, where we launched Gear VR and try to build an ecosystem for virtual reality. And then I moved over to Facebook. And while at Facebook, I led developer marketing for AR and VR and really kind of helped to, to frame and, and stand up the Snap, the, the Spark AR ecosystem there. And then I moved over to Snap, where I'm more so focused on now building out a creator and developer ecosystem for, for Snap. And my fun fact, I guess, would be that for this year, my silver lining was I was able to work from the Virgin Islands for the entire year so far. And, you know, I was born and raised here and um, I was able to spend time with my family um, as a silver lining from the work from home shift. So, Super. Leading the remote working wave. Yes. Thank you, everyone, for the intros. We are talking together about developer-led growth. It means a lot of things to a lot of people. And we had this prep discussion a few weeks ago on like 
what does it mean for our panelists? So I have a few questions I wanna uh, ask you first, and we have some questions already submitted on Slido, but I'll go through these in a bit. Uh, oh, the uh, Slido link is here if you wanna fire your own questions at the panelists. Now, one thing we touched on is what are the new audiences? And developers used to mean very, very specific things. You know, maybe in the early days, it used to be code monkeys and they used to be architects. And now it's becoming creators and it's becoming no code people and citizen developers and all of these things. And like, you know, we're running out of uh, words in the dictionary. Uh, I want to ask some of you here and who have a very, um, I, I think, a rather clear view on what are some of these audiences. So Kimberly, you are seeing a lot of creators, I'm sure, because ARVR has like a very particular Absolutely. demographic. So what are you seeing? So for me, what I'm seeing is there's a lot, the creator and the developer are one and the same for AR. So we have people with artistic and design background that's coming in. And because the tools are no code or low code, they're able to leverage their design skills, leveraging tools that have already been built using machine learning or some of the other more advanced technology that developers have historically been responsible for putting together. So it's a it's a yin and a yang type ecosystem. We can't really do the spatial the spatial um, computing and such without the developer, the core developer audience that we've had in the past. But we also, it's very design um, heavy in terms of these experiences that we're putting forth. So we also are attracting a lot of design and creators. Um, we're also seeing a lot of younger folks because the education barrier is relatively low because they can be self-taught. So the, the trend is really go to YouTube, find a video, speak to creators and really peer-to-peer -peer learning is is strong so it's actually i anticipate a, a a huge growth um within the developer creator community especially for emerging technologies given the barrier is is lower the other type of developer we discussed uh, last time was citizen developer which i wanted to hear from patrick like I hadn't heard the name before you brought it up, Patrick, and I wanted to hear like how you define it. Is it like different to the creators that Kimberly mentioned? Uh, what apps are they building? Yeah, so uh, citizen developers, actually, it's not a term from me or from Microsoft. It's a term from Gartner, I think. Uh, so you'll find some literature about that on the Gartner website. But essentially, it's uh, uh, developers or, or it's actually low-code platform users. There's been lots of low-code platforms created in the past few years uh, who are working in the business and need or want to automate some functions of their business. And for that, they're leveraging low-code platforms. So that's one of the trends that we identified at Microsoft in the past few years. We have a platform for that called Power Platform. And one of the things that my team has been involved in uh, is to work on that notion uh, that's also from Gartner of a fusion team. Uh, fusion teams are teams within organizations uh, where pro developers are working with low-code developers who are part of the business to create solutions and to create all the millions of apps that businesses need today. And there's a restricted set of pro developers in the world, while the number of people who can use low-code platforms to achieve their business goals is enormous. 
And here we're talking about a growth of a, a factor of 10. And one of the things that struck me uh, this year is reading the Gartner blog is that uh, this fusion team that we created within my team to, to work with all the pro dev teams and talk to these uh, low-code audience, citizen developer audience, um, uh, what, what I've read is that 84% of organizations have been at least have built at least one fusion team in the past few years. And 40% of these teams have a leader that reports outside of IT. So to me, this is really an area where uh, it's growth that's led by software, but not by traditional professional developers, but by low-code users, platform users, that usually work in conjunction with their IT department to secure all these applications and with uh, professional developers uh, to build the APIs. So... That's citizen developers and fusion teams. And then we have creators. Uh, Emilio, Tyler, what other developer, like, yeah, have you seen, like, Gen Z or younger developers? Well, I think that there is a, a definite interesting trend that there's a broad class of people who would identify as technologists or engineers who are increasingly going to call themselves as developers. And, and you can see this reflected in the as-a-code trend. We now have infrastructure as code. There's data pipelines, which guess what? You write them as code. There's machine learning constructs that you write as a data scientist. And, you know, and, and these people, um, since they are working in um, a language of some sort, they would identify as a developer. They use developer-related tools. They would want a experience that is similar to a developer or maybe tailored a little bit to their domain. They might be using Git or a certain type of version control. So that workflow, that experience, and the nature of the collaboration they work on with their peers is very development-like. And, and so they would also identify themselves as developers as well. Emilio? Yeah, I, I, I agree with, um, with Tyler. And in fact, we at Google, we are trying to use the term dev in, in a different context. I mean, in fact, you know, we, we used to call our audience the technical practitioner audience. Right. When you think about a developer, um, we, we tend to think about someone using an IDE, writing code, you know, with a, with a, a, a very specific you know, background. We don't see that's the case anymore. I mean, uh, right now you can think even and data scientists as developers, people who use technology in order to solve business problems, you know, with different degrees of expertise. So it's clear that the concept has evolved and even some of the terms that we've been using in the past are no longer applicable, right? Um, because some of those terms even can carry some weight, right? Um, creator versus designer versus developer. So we are trying to expand, you know, the way we are looking at technology and people using that technology and how they help business grow and move forward. And technical practitioners is a term that we feel you know, encapsulates um, the, some of those segments. Do you think we know how, how they self-identify? Like if you go to like a citizen developer or like a creator or like a tech, I forget how you call them. Uh, it's actually been like one, of the biggest, one of the biggest struggles have been that self-identification and what do we call people? Because 
they don't self-identify like that. And you have a new wave of people that call themselves creative technologists that technically is between the design and, and a developer and they merge the skills. They can do a little bit of code. They can do a lot design. It is, it's, it's a new area where depending on how the developer feels, they could be a creator and they actually code. So we really don't have great ways of bucketing them at the, at the moment. And I think, my approach is more so like understand this this span of the skill set and being able to provide tools and resources that uh, that you can self serve and and find the the utilities and the support tools that you need because if i say this is developer support and this is creator support then it, it kind of you know especially with the technology merging those skill sets it just becomes a, a burden for the person using it to find what they need to find so it's increasingly becoming a little bit difficult to to find a term that encapsulates all of the skill sets that are now within that particular group of uh, developers and creators i would love to see the industry just call them all creative talent the software industry, the closest thing, it, you know, it, the parallel here is to the movie industry. You know, every, every iteration, every version of a piece of software, you know, regardless of what it does, is an opportunity to deliver your creative juices to the market. And the people all around that are similar to producers, directors, and actors. And so this, this is a creative industry. And so regardless of how you do your coding um, and what you call yourself, they're all talent. Yeah, I wanted to rebound. I agree with both Kimberly and Tyler where I think the industry will move towards something like creators because uh, it's all about creation. Uh, that said, for, uh, uh, for, for, for people who are using our platforms, I don't think they self-identify with anything. There are a bunch of platforms out there that allows you to create stuff. There's software in the middle. And you don't necessarily need to have a label assigned to you in order to go leverage them. And uh, I, I'll, I'll give you an example. When we're, when we're building our demos and our content, we build them around like specific industry verticals that people may be part of uh, to show them how they can leverage our platforms to solve problems, for example, in manufacturing or in healthcare. Uh, and, and we don't care whether the, uh, nobody's going to search for citizen developers or fusion team uh, online to end up on your documentation. They're going to look for how do I automate my manufacturing process or how do I automate my healthcare process? So I think in thinking that way in terms of uh, search terms and uh, what people are going to look for uh, is really the, the best way to think about it. These labels that we talked about are really categories that we're using as practitioners that are helping people leverage that technology to find uh, or to determine how to better serve them. And that's a, that's a very fresh perspective, Patrick. I really like that. So if we take that and, say, and take it to the next level, like, okay, so you know how to find them or you know what kind of things they look for, how do you communicate with them? And like in terms of the structure of the organization and you have DevRel and you have Dev Marketing and these are used to talking to specific kinds of people, but like in Snap and other places where you're looking at different audiences, what is happening in practice? Like how are we as organizations adapting to target a completely new audience? Like anyone wants to share, Kimberly? Yeah, and I think it's, you know, for Snap, it's 
it's a ten, they're 10 years old. We're 10 years old as a business and we're moving from being an application to a platform. So whereas the company has always been camera first and we started with communication through the camera and hence the reason we have a Snapchat you know, being the primary application, but taking the camera and evolving that into a platform now and using AR as the primary mechanism for that, we are now seeing the audience that was consuming being the audience that's creating. So Mm. now you have to kind of put a slant on what we were addressing the consumers and they were already creating because you're using camera and you're doing videos and you're, you're creating content technically when you come into Snapchat. So we're taking that type of creativity and we're evolving it with a skill set and being able to provide documentation that helps people to transfer that, whatever they're thinking in their mind and, and actually creating that into an experience that they can share with their community. So they're actually one and the same. The creator and the consumer tends to be relatively close in terms of how you're communicating because you're already coming, you're already addressing a creative audience from your consumer side. So my the marketing that I put out is a little bit more skewed towards a, a Gen Z type audience because we we technically over-index on a Gen Z audience is about 90% plus. Um, of the US and UK audience that we have that has Snapchat. So being that you have over 500 million people on a monthly basis using the application, these are the people that technically are more inclined to create for the same community of people. So we're, we're seeing that. And the trends from Gen Z, they're very, it's a very Interesting um, generation because they're the first digital generation. They're the first ones that came in and this technology was here. Now, me (laughs) as a millennial, you know, saw it evolved in my lifetime, but to come into it and be born into it, they're already inclined to do a lot of the technical um, the, the technical back end, they're, they're exposed to it from the beginning. So they're very smart and, and, and quick to learn. And all we need to do is provide them with the resources to do that. And they're very much a, like teach myself and go forth. So we've had people that were 16 years old come in, never did machine learning before, looked at documentation and is now, you know, consulting our engineers on what they think we should be doing in machine learning. And I mean, like to see that type of passion for wanting to one, learn themselves, but also to share their learnings with others is really a great place to be where we're seeing, we're seeing communities that are, 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 are basically teaching each other how to use this technology. And so I find it very fascinating and just be able to create a space for them to interact and then also creating the documentation in a way that they are preferred, which is more so video than it is, you know, text. I I would add something to that, you know, based on my experience, going back to the idea of like having labels and trying to identify, you know, different segments. What, what I've seen happening a lot is that we are just trying to create walls that don't exist, right? I mean, I've seen that from, from the early 2000s, where we used to have, like, developers, IT pros, and, and things along those lines. And, and those walls don't exist anymore. It's like we just see people trying to solve um, business problems using technology. So I think it is less so about who you are and more about 
what you're trying to do. You know, I want to, I want to add, I, I, Kim, I, I just love that, that, you know, you, you're doing tech and appealing to developers at a, um, at a company that has an age demographic. And so you look at how to partition the audience through a demographic lens, which is just so unusual. Um, I think most of us, probably Emilio, Patrick, and I come from a, a B2B and tech world. And, you know, so demographics generally don't apply nearly as well, but we, uh, we tend to look at things um, uh, with different kinds of lenses, and there has there has been a big shift, um, uh, you know, in how to lo- look at developers or engage with them, um, and that and that st- shift is still going on. And I call it the shift from MQLs, uh, marketing qualified lead conversion funnels, um, to the PQL, the product qualified lead, you know, conversion funnel. And um, a lot of the a lot of the world that that we live within. Um, it used to be that if you were going to build a business and you wanted to engage technologists, you you know you designed a system of discovery, um, then getting some sort of MQL. That MQL would hopefully turn into an SQL and an opportunity, and then you POC it and you close it and you get a lot of money. You know, and and that just doesn't work for developers because developers are in the moment. They seek out solutions to problems while they have the problem. They don't generally do it in advance, and and they also have this desire to. Um, engage in experiences, learn from other people's experiences. And so community is really important to them. And so what we're starting to see is just product-led growth, which is, you know, a euphemism for developer-led growth. And that product-led growth, the PQL, product-qualified lead, if you will, cycle, is yet once again a discovery in the moment, um, community, um, and then start. How do you get a developer started? Um, And then how do you lead them to activation, um, you know, so that they are getting real value out of that solution. And then you convert them into some sort of, um, you know, end goal, whether it's, you know, a credit card or monetization or, you know, some other, uh, whatever your objective is. And then you scale them. You take that one developer and scale them up. And so I think we've got this other lens of how to look at these audiences too, which is this big old shift from MQLs to PQLs going on. I recently read Ask Your Developer by Twilio CEO Jeff Lawson, which is a great book. And I think it's it's for like all the companies who are going on digital transformation. And one of the things it said, you know, as you uh, go into digital transformation, you find yourself hiring a lot of developers. So here's how you should treat them. And one mistake companies make, he says, is they treat developers as code monkeys, but instead they are the ones that can listen to a customer problem and solve it much more efficiently than the spec team or the business team knows how to. So, uh, you know, treat them as the creatives, uh, the creative problem solvers, the people that will, that need to be right in front of the customer when, um, you know, that, that contact is made because they can solve problems for you far easier and far, uh, far quicker. There's one from uh, Andrea Trasati who is asking, Kim, given your audience, how do you provide information to them? Is it like classic written documentation? Is it more visual and interactive? Is it something else? It's a great question. Yeah, it's definitely more visual. And so, and it's leveraging the platforms that they're already using. So YouTube is our friend in terms of people wanting to find information. It is one of the biggest search engines and and it provides a lot of resources and people automatically instinctively go there to to find things that they want to learn. And so we have a whole, you know, whether it's a course, whether it's just a, a demo, every everything from 
you know, um, having our creators create create their own videos and share that with the community. Um, that's that's kind of where we are, and I think we're even in a process right now of shifting the the, the documentation and the stuff that we do have um, currently to optimize for that type of learning, where we've learned that creators and developers prefer video as a primary means of education. And then also examples. So we are very heavy on templates. And so any feature that is released is accompanied with a template just to start. You know, that way you don't have to, to, to start from scratch. You have a, be, a starting jump off point. And then from there you can customize and create. And that kind of allows you to hit the ground running as opposed to having to consume the information and then start from scratch. So I think those, those tools being more visual, making sure it's accessible on the channels that are already preferred. And then in addition to that, making um, being able to create um, the peer-to-peer. And I think that's the biggest thing that we have learned is that people prefer to learn from other people that are working within the same space and creating those opportunities for the developers and creators that are willing to share what they've learned with the community is, is definitely a strategy that I'm double down. I'm doubling down. Uh, something, thank you, Kim. Something else I wanted to touch on uh, given Tyler is here is like, we're looking at new audiences and if we just look at the developer uh, audience which you've been looking at Tyler it's already growing pretty fast so what are your uh, expectations for how fast it's growing and do we have does anyone else have estimates like I think Patrick or someone else mentioned we're looking at you know 10x the audience size yeah so you know I think what's interesting in the um, in the classic sense of the word developer, you know, so if you narrow it down to software engineer, and we use that that very classic that classic definition, maybe database developer or front end engineer, um, that that audience globally has not been growing fast, and it hasn't been growing fast, frankly, for the past two decades. You know, if if there is you know um, eight eight or nine percent growth of professional people who earn a paycheck from that, that's that's pretty good. And, and it's because of that lack of growth um, why the businesses in and around developers, uh, we measure at $40 billion revenue annually, and, that, and that's in that report of that landscape that we did um, uh, across those 1,200 companies. Um, and the reason that those businesses are $40 billion revenue annually and growing um, at a significant pace is that they, you, know, you, you have a supply and demand problem. The demand from consumers for many more digital services is outpacing the availability of software engineers to build them, these things meeting the middle. And so that creates these wonderful opportunities for, guess what, solutions that make developers way more productive and, and meet the needs of consumers in a faster way. So that's why this whole industry is, is, has happened that way. Um, but I think to, to Patrick's uh, point, um, low code and the emergence of citizen developers or the conversion of everything to as code, whether it's infrastructure as code, pipelines as code, um, your, your forms as code, whatever that may be, um, what that does is it opens up a bunch of uh, groups who need to build um, automations or services or you know, pick whatever it is. Um, uh, you, you know, to enable people who don't want to uh, build up that classic software engineering skill set and go through that software engineering workflow, and suddenly they can be part of the creative talent and the creator mechanism of that. And I, I think, honestly, I think that's kind of impossible to measure. I, I think what we have to do is really start from how many productivity workers do we have on the planet? 
and we'll start with that number and 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 how is that growing? Um, and you know, Patrick, you said that's what an order of ten. It might be an order of a thousand over the number of actual developers on the front on the front line there. So so I think that that's mostly mostly immeasurable on that front. Um, we recently commissioned um, a study with I think it was Oxford uh, Economics and. One of the things we were trying to understand is what the future workforce would look like, um, especially given we have such uh, a strong um, engagement with Gen Z, what would be their place? And they basically said in about 10 years, we're expecting Gen Z to be about 30% of the workforce. And that's like 87 million people. And you have a, a generation that is tech first and uh, and has all of this ba- um, just in regardless of whether you pursue it as a career, your understanding of technology is beyond that of any past generation. So we can expect that majority of the of that generation will find jobs within a tech space. In addition to the workforce itself demanding more of um, less of a manual um, labor type workforce, because we have this, uh, as they will call it, the fourth industrial revolution of our technology coming forward. And you have AI to do a lot of the mundane work that has previously been, you know, in within the workforce. So now you need people that are actually really creative thinkers and problem solvers as the core part of the workforce moving forward, because that's where the value and the opportunity is going to be. And so when we have the baseline of what needs to be done and the mechanisms are going to be covered by all of the the technology that will manage the mundane, then it's really up to the creatives and the problem solvers to really take that technology and apply it where it needs to be. And so I see a lot more of the, the, the Gen Z talent being applied to this new way. The, the future developers are basically going to be creatives and problem solvers. And that is that how we would probably define this space moving forward um, as that, especially as the technology grows and the types of jobs that we have now for coding will automatically be done by AI. Yeah, so I, I wanted to rebound on, on two things, uh, one that Tyler said and one that Kim said. In what, uh, in what Kim said, there, there's one aspect that's important to notice, which is uh, technology is disappearing. The, and especially when you're talking to Gen Z, they, they, they don't care about the technology. It's just one of the tools they're using to do their jobs. Uh, recently, I, I had a chat with my son who's studying literature at UChicago, uh, he's using Python to do uh, machine learning to analyze uh, large volumes of text. Uh, to him, it's just a tool. He doesn't care about Python. He doesn't even care about the algorithm uh, that, are, that are used to do the machine learning. He just wants to analyze the text and extract some meaning out of it. So to me, there's one aspect there, also in what Kimberly said, where the Gen Z users are really learning together. The community aspect is super important. So at Microsoft, we formalize that with something called the Student Ambassador Program, where we have our YouTube videos and our online uh, demos that you can do by yourselves uh, on Microsoft Learn with sandboxes, and you can code in there, just follow the instructions. But the thing that really makes a difference in in when students are studying together and learning all that together, that aspect of technology disappearing, I think, is very important there. And so going where developers are with the modes of learning that they have is, I think, important. 
Now, to what Tyler had said about the factor being uh, uh, thousands, <laughs> I agree with you, Tyler. I think we're in the tens of millions of uh, professional developers today. Personally, I like to uh, set some uh, workable goals for myself and my team. So we're going after the 10x uh, for the next five years. Then we'll talk about the, the next 10x. Uh, That's smart. But essentially, we're, we're talking about going from the crowd that's using Visual Studio Code today to the set of people who are using uh, Microsoft Office. That's kind of the size of the jump that we're trying to make and uh, enable all of them uh, to be productive and solve their business problems. There's a, there's a related question which I love from Alan Knabe, which is, what, to what extent do you try to avoid the word developer from your products so that non-technical employees won't be put off from using low-code tools? Whoever wants to jump at that. I'm actually the reverse where we really started out with creators as our term. So like our term is lens creators. Um, and so we started with creators, but what we saw was that the actual developers didn't even look at us in terms of our tool. So it felt like it was like a toy, you know? And so we uh, more recently have actually been doubling down on the term developer because it signals that we actually have tools that were, are built for developers and it's built for coding, it's built for machine learning engineers, it's built for these things. And so that's where it, the, back to the term creator developer and what are we going to call it? Like, it has some historic understanding of what these things are. And so I can't ignore that, but moving forward, they're all creatives, you know, as and, uh, Tyler mentioned. So it's, it's that transition period where you're kind of like, yes, I have to say creator and developer in my, in my messaging, because I need it to be, to be clear that the tools service both of their needs. Um, and so, yeah. That's that's been a little bit of a struggle, and but I'm 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 okay with over indexing on both just to ensure that the the value of the product is clearly articulated, and if that's required, then we'll we'll do that. I think as people get more engaged, we'll drop that and probably end up with just creatives. And talent. there's a there's a wonderful dynamic out there, which is you know if if you are on the marketing side, which most of the people on this call are. You know, our, their job is to bring people in and keep them engaged. And so creator, innovator, disruptor are these powerful terms, talent, you know, that get people to come in. And I think developers increasingly associated with that. And if this group is successful, you know, we're, we're going to start to experience the flip side of that, which is, you know, are you going to be an operator, an owner and maintainer? And one of the one of the dirty little secrets about the low code space, as, as amazing as it is for the citizen developer, is that maintenance of the things that you create is not automatic. Someone has to maintain it. As anybody who has been around from the 90s and opened up an old Excel spreadsheet with a thousand macros and circular links that needs to make a modification will tell you, not so straightforward. And so, so if we're successful with the innovators and the creators and the talent, you know, we're also going to need a generation of people who are owners, maintainers, and uh, healers as well for all these things that are built. So we're, we're almost up for time. I wanted to ask two very quick questions. So one, I, I think someone is asking about where they can find your ecosystem maps, Tyler. Yeah, you can just go to look up the Tyler Jewell Substack or just look up developer-led landscape on that. Thank you. Yeah. 
Um, there's a question about how do you grow with your business to developer strategy? To that, I would say there is this book I mentioned, Developer Relations and Marketing Essential Guide. There's a chapter there specifically on how do you bootstrap your developer program. And I have a question for everyone. If you can answer with like a couple of words. So how would you call developers in five years from now? What words would you use? Just thinking out loud. Basically, they're they're creatives that solve problems and introduce new. I, I think really what we're seeing is the culture is shifting in a way where really the creators are pulling the culture with them. So, you know, I would say they're culture shifters. They're definitely creative problem solvers. And that's um, those would be the terms I would use. I'll go with transformation leader. Transformative leaders. Cool. I think I'm with Patrick. Uh, although I don't see the term developer going, uh, you know, going away anytime soon, right? I mean, I think that the term carries weight, and I think that we need we need to be able to to expand, you know, the term. But it's it's not going away, you know, anytime soon. Indeed. Well, that was a lovely discussion, and I wish we had more time for it. We have a short break and we were going to have a five minute break, but instead it's a three minute break. So let's uh, thank you, everyone. Thanks. Very nice to have you here. And uh, we'll reconvene in three minutes uh, with the next session. Bye for now. Thank you, everyone. Thank you. thank you, everyone. And for our listeners, thank you for listening to Under the Hood of Developer Marketing, the podcast devoted to developer marketing and relations. You can listen to all episodes, find free resources, and the latest news at devralex.com. You can also subscribe to our bite-sized bi-weekly digest or follow us on Twitter at slash data HQ.